Goodbye, Lloyd. In a way, but now I'm back. Good evening, Mr. Torrance. It's good to see you. It's good to be back, Lloyd. What would be so? Hair of the Dog That Bit Me, a shining retrospective series podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Arnie. Part of their Stephen King retrospective series, Battle Doer. No charge to you, Mr. Torrance. No charge? Your money's no good here. Orders from the house. Say, Lloyd, I'm the kind of man who likes to say up front this podcast series will have spoilers and harsh language. Thank you for saying so. And these podcasts, they're coming out each week at nowplayingpodcast.com? It's not a matter that concerns you, Mr. Torrance. At least not at this point. Anything you say, Lloyd. Anything you say. What say we take a listen now? Today we're discussing Dr. Sleep, starring Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, Kylie Curran, Cliff Curtis, directed by Mike Flanagan. This is the now playing co-host who eats, screams, and drinks pain, Arnie. Hi there, it's Stuart. This is your steamy host, Jacob. Here's a retrospective that I never thought we'd go back to. I know, Stuart, you'd been saying that they were threatening a prequel to The Shining. And when we did those Shining movies, it was the only time now playing is ever tied into a book. Can I correct you there? We did one Shining movie and then we did, I don't know, something that was released to TV. I don't want to talk about that thing. There's (laughs) only one Shining. Yeah, that is the trouble going forward. Of course, Warner Brothers would want some continuation of what is one of the most celebrated horror movies and books of all time, but movie and book don't like each other, (laughs) and they divorced years ago, and how do you bring them back together for the sequel? Here's my theory. Now, when we did our Shining Retrospective back in 2013... We were leading up to my Books and Nachos review of Dr. Sleep, Stephen King's sequel book to The Shining, picking up whatever happened to Dan Torrance. I always loved it. Stephen King had joked that he went off and married Charlie from Firestarter and the two of them moved to Salem's lot together. Sadly, that is not the plot of this book. I did hear the pitch was that it was Danny Torrance all grown up fighting vampires. The word used was vampires when they were talking about Dr. Sleep when it was coming out before anyone had read it. Yeah, I remember that. And in a way, I mean, there's nothing else you can refer to the villains as. They're just a bootleggers, (laughs) Rob Zombie wannabe fans, carnies, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I have my own theory. Stephen King has never really said why he wanted to go back to The Shining. But I have a theory that I'm going to put out here. And it's a theory based on a different movie. So indulge me on this story. But back in like 2000, 2001, Joe Quesada, head of Marvel went to Bill Jameis and Paul Jenkins and said, let's write a Wolverine origin story. Let's finally say where this character comes from. And the other writers were like, well, his origin is a mystery. Why would we want to write this story? Why do we want to nail it down? And Quesada said, because Fox is making a lot of money on these movies and they're going to tell the origin story. We can either do it first and tell them where to go 
or we can just let them do it and then we're beholden to what they come up with. And so they came up with this comic book Wolverine origin that came out in 2001, 2002, where they were just trying to beat Fox to the punch. Well, we know that Warner Brothers had been trying to make a Shining prequel for years. They had the rights to do this. I think Stephen King was motivated by, if they're going to make another Shining movie, let me give them the template that they have to go off of. Let me write something and see if I can steer them in that direction. But actually, that's what they were going to do anyway. I looked into this. I could never find the script. It's probably out there somewhere. But I did find out what they were doing. They had hired this writer, Glenn Mazzara who had written several episodes of The Shield, if you remember that show, and Walking Dead. That was his credentials coming into this. And he had the idea of going back to a prologue that was connected to The Shining that just got excised. Before the play, that's what it was called, this five-part prologue to The Shining, basically told of how the Overlook Hotel was built by this gangster figure who we know mostly from the movie as the guy getting the blowjob from the <laughs> dog furry. Yeah, that is out there. I did find it online and I reviewed it as part of my Shining review because it is a piece of ephemera that Stephen King fans really want to know more about. Yeah, and the writer insisted, I'm not going to fill it with a lot of worthless, oh, here's Scatman getting hired in the kitchen cameos. I'm not going to call back to everything, but I am going to tell you how the hotel got evil in the first place. And so that was the idea that was greenlit as far as to... 2015, it was rolling. They hired a director, Mark Romanek, who did several amazing music videos. If you know Nine Inch Nails' Closer video, he did that. Johnny Cash's Nine Inch Nails cover, uh, Hurt, (laughs) he did that video. Uh, He does other videos too, but yeah, I think that he has an evocative vision for horror. He also did the Robin Williams' one-hour photo thriller, which was kind of okay-ish. Yeah. I mean, I won't count it against him. It had vision. And so, if we're going back to the shine to me, going to look at the hotel seems a whole lot more compelling than going to look at Danny. Despite it being called The Shining, I never really cared about the psychic powers. To me, what was interesting was the ghosts. Yeah, we'll talk about it when we get into the film, because I think Dr. Sleep is going to recontextualize what Kubrick did with The Shining, but as I was watching Dr. Sleep and thinking about that title, The Shining, I don't think about psychic powers. I don't think about mind reading when I think of that movie. I think about a haunted house and a spooky hotel with ghosts. I think I connected with it more as a child because I had a dream of being telekinetic. I watched Escape from Witch Mountain and I wanted to have powers. So to see a kid with powers made him feel like he had a way of fighting back in a haunted house. But it was about being in a scary place that was what was most compelling about it. And I would want to go back there following Dan Torrance on some adult adventure. Not uninteresting, but lesser. I do think King had another reason for returning to this is, and I talked about this a lot in Books and Nachos, and I'm not going to revisit my Books and Nachos here. I stand by it. I reread the book. I did it in audiobook form this time, but I reread Dr. Sleep, and then I reread my Books and Nachos, and I really stand by that review, though it was controversial at the time because I did not give the book unadulterated praise. I said it was good, not great. The thing is, when King wrote The Shining, he considered himself a recovered alcoholic. His idea of recovered alcoholic is I'll have two to three beers a day. And so (laughs) he wasn't in program. He didn't even know about the program back then. And so he wrote Jack Torrance in that book as he saw himself, a person who just knuckled up and stopped drinking for his family and things and then went and 
had the bad event with the ghosts. But since then, as we've talked about many times, King has cleaned up. AA is a big part of his life. Yeah, I think he found God. He talks about how he reads the Bible and things like that, whereas we know what he thought about religious people in the 70s and early 80s. So I think he also wanted to revisit the character and talk about his AA experience. If Jack Torrance was Stephen King in the 70s, I think Dan Torrance is the way Stephen King would like to see himself now as a person who is actively in AA and a recovered alcoholic. And I'm up for that. I've known many people in recovery. They do have a lot of hard, amazing stories that are horrific real-life horror stories. So I think that there is something there to be mined. If that is the direction we're going, okay. But I just want to put it out there. I would have preferred Mark Romanek going to the Overlook Hotel. Well, they had two competing projects simultaneously. I mean, before Dr. Sleep came out, Warner Brothers was talking about doing their prequel to The Shining. But then, after Dr. Sleep came out in 2013, starting then, Warner Brothers was looking at making one of these two, and neither one could get greenlit because of budget. And then, Warner Brothers came out with It!, and it made a shit ton of money, all of a sudden they're like, yes, let's do the one that has Stephen King's name on it. Let's do Dr. Sleep. And that's why we got this movie now. And back when we were covering The Shining, I was really excited about Dr. Sleep, but I just didn't have the time to read it. And I didn't listen to your books and nachos, Arnie, because I didn't want to hear spoilers of anything till I had that chance to read it. I finally caught up with it because this movie was coming out. I read the book. I think you were exceptionally kind. <laughs> I hated this novel. I thought it was absolutely terrible. And take away the disappointment of it not living up to The Shining. I'm going to set that in a box and put that box aside. Put it in the hedge maze. And we can just talk about what he did give us. And I'm sorry, but it's 533 pages of people driving around having telepathic conversations. Is King a texter? Because this thing <laughs> didn't feel phoned in. It felt texted in. Like, it is just literally psychic people, blah, 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 endless astral projection and dialogue wandering around all of the claustrophobia of The Shining. Now they're just driving all over America with nowhere to go. Just huge storylines that never hang together. Danny has no characterization whatsoever. That was one of my biggest complaints. The villains. A gypsy in a hat sniffing child vapors out of a can is the opposite of scary. <laughs> no, this is terrible. The thing I wanted most from this movie, and they wisely skipped was to see the vision of Rose the Hat with her giant walrus tusk. Because as Stephen King described it, when she fed off the child vapors, she grew this giant tusk that came out of her upper mouth and down below her chin. And I just pictured this in my mind, and it was hysterical to think of this pretty woman turning into half walrus. I think this is one of the worst Stephen King books I've ever read. Gets up there with Tommyknockers. You want to talk about steam? It's a steaming turd. <laughs> I don't think it was that bad. Here was my problem. And unfortunately, this movie sticks very, very close to the book in so many ways. But I'll agree with you. I thought the villains were incredibly weak. I don't think King wrote good villains here, and I'm confused why. I thought Dan was a very bland character. Mm. Not unlike a lot of bland characters, King has just become a crutch of writing. That's what I said in my books and nachos. It's just, he's a do-gooder in a situation, and I don't think they made him go dark enough during his alcoholic period. 
in the book, as in here, there's the little kid who goes for the cocaine and Dan leaves him there. This is as bad as rock bottom could get for Stephen King. A person who had to shove cotton up his nose to stop the bloody nose from the cocaine and who was sober for two hours a day during which he professed he only thought about killing himself during his sober times. Rock bottom here is I left a kid in a bed with a lady and took her money. And so I just didn't think it was edgy enough or interesting enough, but I thought his prose was incredibly compelling, and I loved The Shining. It stands as my favorite Stephen King book, and so getting to see what happened to Dan was interesting to me. If it hadn't been connected to The Shining, I don't think I would have liked the book at all. Yeah, that's what I'd really argue, is would there be any feeling for this at all if this weren't Dan Torrance? Yeah, there would be feeling, because I was kind of dreading it, not because I read this book, I don't know anything about it, my wife's a big King fan, she read it, I think her opinion goes with you Stewart, she did not like it at all but for me the worry was oh you're doing a sequel to the shining like this classic horror film we're gonna get citizen kane 2 next do we really want to go here like how are they gonna pull this off and i was expecting the worst going in here's the big thing for king is he wrote a sequel to his book and at the end of his book there was no hedge maze in his book they had set up this ticking clock of a boiler that was going to explode in The Shining, and you knew from the very beginning that that's how that book was going to end because of the way King wrote it, and Jack Torrance died a fiery death, unable to stop the boiler from exploding. The Overlook was completely obliterated at the end of that book, as we saw in his 1997 TV miniseries. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember a miniseries. Yeah, just keep it that way. Keep it locked in that box. You don't need to open that box. <laughs> It's really awful. Yeah, I agree. It's difficult because people do love that book. People do love that movie. Going forward, there's huge discrepancies between the two. I don't think anyone would accept a sequel to the miniseries. No, absolutely no. <laughs> you have to acknowledge on some level that Kubrick has contributed to The Shining's esteem. It is a more renowned property because he made the movie in his vision and not in King's vision. Sorry, Stephen King, but this is a collaboration with you and Kubrick now. You can't write this alone. And enter Mike Flanagan. Now, Mike Flanagan had a relationship with Stephen King. I actually feel Mike Flanagan may be our new Frank Darabont. I think he may be King's new golden boy. I would argue he's the closest thing we have to this decade's master of horror. He has made like eight films in eight years, all horror, and they're all pretty good. I mean, they all have interesting qualities. He started in low-budget kind of Blumhouse stuff. He made these little things like Absentia, Oculus. There's a movie called Hush I recommend. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's a home invasion movie with a deaf-mute woman fending off a guy in a mask. It's not particularly compelling as a story, but as a piece of suspense craft, really good. I watched it this week, and I think the guy's got real skill. Arnie, I know you saw two of his works, the Ouija sequel. Yeah, Origin of Evil. I reviewed that for the radio show in the UK. I saw the first one. It was utter shit. And the second one was actually really good. I liked that one a lot. I liked the period flavor he brought to it, adding cigarette burns to a digitally filmed movie and everything. Yeah, that one I liked. Gerald's Game, I thought was fine. Kind of generic. It was a Netflix movie. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. It was, you know, it's a hard book to adapt when mm -hmm. it's about one person tied up on a bed the whole time, having some possible hallucinations and things. It's very interesting to write as a novel because you're able to do a deep character study, much harder to do as a film, but I thought he did okay. 
and I think we'll be reviewing Gerald's Game before too awful long. It was an early 90s book, came out not too long after Misery. Yeah, we'll see how much we want to expedite King, but yeah, there's a few movies ahead of it. But I think his Jewel in His Crown is the adaptation of Haunting of Hill House that he did for Netflix as a whole series of television last year. He really expanded that. I mean, it's a novel. It's like a 200-page novel. He made 10 hours of a show, modernized it, and I think he has a real gift for taking drama and mixing it with gothic horror. Like, some of the haunting stuff in it, there's a segment in there with the hung woman, the bent neck woman, like, this is a standalone. Just go watch that episode. You will be impressed. Yeah, I know that series got a lot of praise. I watched a couple episodes and just never got back to it. But yeah, I remember it being pretty impressive. But Flanagan and his producer were approached to do this and they went to King and I think King had script approval from the way I'm reading this. King had to sign off on what Flanagan wrote and what Flanagan said was, listen, there's no way we can do this and not bring in Kubrick. We know you don't like what Kubrick did, but when I think of the Overlook Hotel, I think of what Kubrick filmed in. And when I think of the ghosts, I think of how Kubrick depicted the ghosts. So what he pitched King is it was going to be an adaptation of King's book. Exactly for the first two-thirds of the movie, it was going to follow the book. But when it came to the end, in the book, it took place on the grounds where the Overlook was. The psychic vampires had built an RV park near it. <laughs> well, because the Overlook burned down in the book. So, like, you literally, unless you're going to say phantasmagorically it rebuilt itself, <laughs> like, you know, which you can do in a haunted house story. Were they only there during the summer? Because we saw what it's like there in the winter. I don't want to be no trailer park there in the winter. <laughs> yeah, I had that feeling towards the end of the movie, the child is left outside because it's too dangerous to go in. I'm like, uh, she might be in more physical danger of being exposed to the elements but yeah the point is they had to deal with the fact that they are going to have the hotel in this story in this adaptation king didn't immediately say yes they hmm. said he took some time to think about it about a day and he came back and he said all right let's go ahead and do that i mean it's still true to my book but now the climax is happening in the hotel instead of on the grounds of the hotel he signed off on this now having seen the movie he loves the movie he says it redeems Kubrick's The Shining. <laughs> yeah. You know, there have been some TV ads. He's literally putting himself out there. Not only is he doing press, he's in the advertisements endorsing it. I will have some questions as we go through this, because I don't know if they're trying to retcon The Shining, make it gel more with the book, but they definitely add some details that I don't get from watching that 80s film just alone by itself. Or the 90s one. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so surprisingly, even though I hated the book so much, and I know that King is insisting that they film his book because Flanagan is involved, and to a lesser extent because McGregor is involved, I was semi-excited to go see it this past Thursday. I actually did sit and watch The Shining first. I'm like, I want to see it side by side. I emerged from the Kubrick film, and I just said, please, oh please, if you can just capture a kernel of it, I'll forgive this book's major problems. I can't imagine what your experience was like. Now, I've rewatched The Shining not all that long ago, so I didn't have time to... When I watch The Shining, I need to be completely with The Shining. I cannot multitask. I want to be in a dark room and enveloped by that movie. Mm -hmm. I did not have the time to set aside for that experience, but I know that film so well inside and out. So I went straight into Doctor Sleep with a year or so between Shining visits. But... The tone of the film, you just can't recapture Kubrick, you can't even try, so I can't imagine what it would be like to go from that languid, cold, deliberate film 
into this where the beginning just races you through a couple decades. But the trailer, that's what got me excited. Whenever I saw the trailer and I'd hear that synthesizer sting, or we'd see Ewan McGregor look through the bathroom doorway that has the hatch marks from the axe attack, that was the stuff that made me go, you know what? Maybe, maybe just maybe. But I don't feel like a lot of people are feeling that because this box office is slightly underwhelming. They're expecting a Roland Emmerich World War II movie to beat it this weekend. Slightly underwhelming. The word that I had read specifically was flop mm. <laughs> because this movie cost about $50 million to make. Yeah. They were expecting early tracking, an opening of 25 to $30 million. It is opening now. The estimates as of this recording are closer to $13 million. Wow. Yeah, you guys keep saying King is back because of it. I don't know. Throw clowns in all those movies. No one cares if there's not a clown in it. Jacob, I don't know. Pet Cemetery opened at double this earlier this year. $25 million for Pet Cemetery, $13 million for this. Okay, if Pet Cemetery is your next hit after it, again, that I think underlines the problem I'm claiming here. Yeah, I mean, the theater we saw, Arnie, I ran into you at the screening. It was, you know, it was a recliner theater, less seats available, but it was not full middle-aged audience. Didn't see a lot of youth, didn't see a lot of youthful enthusiasm, didn't hear the audience reacting to scares, kind of felt dead in there. Yeah, people won't believe this, but you and I, we don't necessarily plan to go to movies together all the time because your schedule and my schedule are very different. And I was in the theater, you walked in, we ended up sitting next to each other. I'm so glad I got to watch you watch this. <laughs> Apparently <laughs> I was doing things with my face. I didn't even know. Yo! <laughs> I know how I was feeling, but it's nice to know it came through. Not your face, your entire body physically <laughs> reacted at a certain moment that I'll talk about. So why is it? Why is this not the number one blockbuster? Why aren't people... I mean, people love The Shining. I mean, it gets re-released to theaters. Do they, though? Or is it our generation loves The Shining? Well, why aren't they there? I guess that's my point. Why aren't people... Because we got kids now and it's hard to get out to the theaters. I Wait for Netflix. Yeah, I, I mean, Ready Player One did a whole Shining thing. I don't think that connected. Well, you know, my daughter read that book and watched that movie. That Shining thing didn't really mean a whole lot to her. It meant more to me it, just watching it in that movie than it ever meant to her. Yeah, I do think some of it is maybe we ought to leave the 80s alone, right? After Terminator had its dark fate at the box office last weekend, and now maybe we're saying that classics from the 80s don't need to be brought back now. And yeah, the primary target is at home doing other things, streaming their entertainment, and maybe they missed this by a month? Like, why isn't this a Halloween-era movie? Well, they did an early release of this. They did a preview screening on Halloween night. I saw a lot of people I know went to that and came out with good things to say. And this was actually supposed to be released on January 20th, but when Warner Brothers got a look at it, they had such confidence in it, they moved it up to be closer to Halloween, but Halloween had its own releases and things that they were dancing around. I really don't feel like there was much this Halloween as far as horror. Zombieland is a comedy, and Joker isn't quite a horror. I feel like there was a huge need for a full-on ghost story that this could have maybe capitalized on. I guess they're all at home watching Three from Hell. Yeah. <laughs> not all of us. Just Darnie. And Marjorie and Brock. So maybe the world's not on fire to see us revisit the Overlook Hotel, but let's do it anyway. Arnie, give him the plot. Let's get into Dr. Sleep. Little Danny Torrance survived his father's rage at the Overlook Hotel in 1980. He's all grown up, played by Ewan McGregor, and like his dad, he's an alcoholic. He used the booze to stop seeing the ghosts that still haunted him from that hotel and other places. 
He winds up in Fraser, New Hampshire, where he joins AA and settles into a life as an orderly at a hospice. His shining power allows him to help the dying at their moment of death, calming them, so they nickname him Dr. Sleep. But his daily routine is interrupted when he starts receiving psychic messages from a young girl named Abra, played by Kylie Curran. She also has The Shining and talks to Dan through a chalkboard for several years. Abra is one of the most powerful psychics in the world, able to use her shine to move items and send messages and other things, and that power is like a homing beacon to a group of bad people that call themselves the True Knot. The True Knot is a group of nearly immortal people who extend their life and their youth by feeding on what they call steam, the life essence given off by psychic humans as they die. The problem is, thanks to antidepressants and cell phones and other reasons, steam is harder to find than it used to be, and, despite murdering a few children, the True Knot members are starving to death. The Knot is led by Rose the Hat, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Rose gets a bead on Abra, who is powerful enough to feed the Knot for a long time. So Rose sends the Knot to capture Abra. The young girl, knowing the carnies are coming to get her, calls on Dan for help. Dan and his friend Billy Friedman, played by Cliff Curtis, end up killing all members of the Knot except for Rose. So Abra and Dan go on the road for their final stand at the Overlook Hotel. There, Dan has to face the ghosts of his past, literally, including the ghost of his father, not played by Jack Nicholson, Mm. who keeps offering Dan a drink. And in the hotel, Rose isn't prepared for the ghosts of the Overlook, who kill her and feast on her steam. And Abra escapes the building, but Dan stays inside, possessed by the spirits of the Overlook. And the building's boiler explodes, killing Dan and destroying the hotel. But Dan appears to Abra as a force ghost, helping to guide the girl as credits roll. And as we start, we begin in Florida with the True Knot establishing them first and foremost as the villain of this story. I think that's right. We don't want to think of the Overlook as the central focus. Whatever the advertising might have told you, it is all about a woman in a hat. Yeah, I thought she was the lead singer of Four Non Blondes, right? I was like, <laughs> what's was, going on? I was, that's all I could think of. <laughs> I was singing that song the whole time. Yeah, that stupid <laughs> video where she's running around the playground feels a whole lot the way they prey on these children here. Makes you not like Linda Perry even more. I gotta ask, because you say Rose the Hat. I don't think she's ever called that, but she definitely calls out that hat in one scene. It's like, don't touch my hat. Was she hiding something under her hat in the book? I kept waiting for some reveal. No, I called them carnies in the plot summary. This is the weirdest thing. This ancient people, and they're supposed to be billionaires. Yes, I caught that line later on in the film. They don't live like billionaires. Why are they doing this? And they call normal people rubes, just like carnival folk, and they have these carny names like Barry the Chink and Rose the Hat. and He's the chunk. No, they say chunk in this movie. In the book, he's the chink. Oh. I understand why you changed that. (laughs) So these are the villains here, and they are a type of vampire. They are eating steam. And if you listen to my books and nachos, there's a really weird thing that they cut out of this movie, probably wisely, that King put in, where at 9-11, all the members of the Knot go to New Jersey and stand there and feed off the steam of all the people who died in the towers. Yeah, good cut. (laughs) Good adaptation, then, if you cut that scene out. And you're saying vampires. They're not going to have fangs or anything like that. have a walrus tusk in the book, Jacob. 
okay, I didn't read the book and we're discussing the movie. My take based on the movie, because I know they had like one tooth or something weird in that book, but in this movie, are they just people with the shining that have found the key to immortality by sucking up other people's shining? Agreed. I don't even know the relationship to the shining. They keep using the word steam. Nobody is saying shining. They're saying steam. And as far as I can tell, everyone has steam. When the old people die, they let out steam. Yeah, that it's weird. A non-shining person will die and steam will come out. Right. So if steam is just our soul or our cosmic essence, why can't they eat everyone? Why does it have to be shining kids? They don't explain it in the movie well at all, and that's a disappointment. In the book, it's made very clear everybody does have steam, but first of all... <laughs> the book is so bad in certain ways. In many ways. In almost every way. <laughs> if you are sick, your steam is poisonous. Half the members of the True Knot die in the book before they ever meet Dan or Abra because one of the kids they have was the child of an anti-vaxxer and they had the measles. And so they inhaled measles steam and like the Indians who were given the tainted blankets, they all start to die. I'm already recommending the movie over the book. <laughs> so, you know, I was thinking, why don't they hang out at the hospice with Dan and just yeah. eat yes. some appetizers and just fill up on hors d'oeuvres instead of needing a full meal? It's because old people's steam is diseased and gross. And so they want pure steam and you get the most of it from the psychics. That was my other question. Why don't they ever go after Danny Torrance? Like, we are going to be told that those ghosts wanted his steam in the Overlook. I feel like that's how they're going to try to make Kubrick's film more about The Shining than just a haunted house. But he's an adult. We'll see him turn into a middle-aged man. They never went after him. They never sensed him. Yeah, and they're right there. I mean, again, this opening scene is in Florida. I presume the Everglades. They're by some lake or something. This child, Violet, comes up, and we see them get the hungry, glowing eyes, and they descend upon her. They test her to make sure she's got shining what color's the flower in my hand she knows it okay yum 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 the next thing we know it's also florida same year because there are pictures of violet up going around have you seen this child hanging around the town that they're in they're really close to danny why can't they sense him and we know Danny is using his powers because they're going to bring in all the old characters, all different actors. They're not going to de-age anyone. I don't think you could de-age Shelley Duvall. It's really sad. Whatever has happened to her, she is not doing well if you've seen her lately. You can't de-age Scatman Crothers either because he's dead. <laughs> he's dead. Yes, <laughs> I know that. But they're going to have this thing where Scatman is going to teach Danny, hey, here's how you tackle those ghosts because those ghosts from the Overlook are still coming after him. They're still haunting him. You won't talk, I guess, to his mom because he's still haunted by this until Scatman teaches him, create this box and lock him up in a box. Couldn't he have taught him that, you know, when they met at the Overlook? Hey, there's ghosts here, and if they come after you, lock them up in a box? That would have saved a lot of trouble. Well, what he told him in the Overlook is they're just pictures in the book that can't hurt you. And, yeah. he, and to him, that was true, because he didn't have as much shine as this kid has. So he didn't know the level of jeopardy that Danny was being left in when he left the Overlook Hotel. One of the discrepancies between book and movie is we all know in Kubrick's film, Scatman Crothers got a big old axe in the chest and did not live to see the end of it. At the end of the book, this character was still alive. So they didn't need to make it like a force ghost here popping up on a bench. He was there in this kid's life during his adolescence to mentor him. 
it's kind of annoying to me that we have to bring him back as ghosts. I know it's part of this movie's theme that we all go on and everything has a life beyond our bodies and hence why everyone can come back as ghosts that just keep running off at the mouth. But I hate that. And I feel like we don't need Scatman, Halloran, the character at all. In fact, why do we want to train this kid to contain the overlooked ghosts when what he really needs to be doing is fearing these so much that he won't shine? That's what they're telling us. He turned to drink rather than turn to a shining, and hence why the ghosts are still out there to get him and he's scared. That would be much more effective than having this Ghostbusters scene of him being like, oh, it's really easy to just go into the bathroom and put Mrs. Massey in a jewel box. Why did Stephen King set it up so that a character has all the power in the world to fight anything that's attacking him when he was five years old and then is so scared that he won't use his power and turns to drink? I don't think it's necessarily fear because he overcomes the fear. It's the sheer burden of being assaulted with other people's thoughts and knowing when other people are going to die. It wasn't that he was afraid of it. He just couldn't deal with it. And he just found that the drink would dull the shining. I wish we had a whole lot more time with Dan. God knows Ewan McGregor is a good actor. He is given nothing to do in this movie. And he is not good in this movie. He is a dull nothing. And it's such a disappointment because, you know, he's got Jack Nicholson's devilish grin. They could play when he's in these drunk scenes early on to the idea that he is some of the evilness of his father. But it's a montage. It's barely given any consideration. I will agree with you there, Stuart. I wish Dan Torrance had more of a character arc in this movie. A lot of the characters are pretty thin here. The top knot or whatever you're calling this gang of psychic vampires. I wish there was more development with a lot of these characters. And I definitely feel it with Danny Torrance. Yeah, he's all of a sudden, it seems like he's captured the ghost as a young boy. He's talking to his mom again. And then he's a drunk for reasons. Yeah, suddenly we're jumping to New Jersey 2011 and his life has fallen apart and we're never given any explanation. If Arnie, if what you're saying is true, shouldn't we have understood that? Again, I think it's a mistake to have him conquer his fears as a five-year-old. I think this movie would play better if those ghosts were out there trying to find him, hence why he didn't want to shine. And anything he could do to quell his shine and keep them away is a motivating factor until he meets Abra. Except keep in mind what King was trying to do, which was get away from the Overlook a bit. He had a different story to tell. This is a different story. I think these early scenes, despite how much I, I do want to pay a compliment... I think Carl Lumbly is a decent replacement for Scatman Crothers. I think if you're not going to CGI a ghost, which I don't think you should do, I'm looking at you, James Dean movie, then Carl Lumbly is a very decent recast here. He has nothing that Scatman has. He doesn't even, he looks 20 years younger. He's got none of that twinkle. There's nothing. There's not a bit of Scatman in him. I thought he looked about the same. Yes, younger. I did notice that. Looked but nothing like him. Looked nothing like him. And the Wendy, she got the run right. I'll give her that. That little (laughs) bird-like flap that she does. She didn't have to hold the knife, but that's all that she got. She didn't look a thing like Shelley Duvall. No, she did not. She was far more attractive than Shelley Duvall to the point that I thought it was Elizabeth Banks in a wig for most of the movie. And then I had to look it up. I'm like, was that Elizabeth Banks? No, it's some other actress who's done stuff. Her name's Alex Esso. But... I thought Scatman Crothers was the best replacement they did. I'm not talking about Wendy. That's two different thoughts. Saying it's the best of the recast is different from saying it's good. I thought it was fine. For what he had to do, I thought his performance convinced me enough that he was Dick Halloran. But I 
in my Books and Notchers review stated that I thought King spent way too much time jumping through the years and just giving us flashes into the lives of the Knot, the lives of Abra as an infant, and the lives of Dan as he got drunk and things. Here, this book should have started with the current day. I think that a lot of time is spent here on stuff that isn't all that fulfilling and doesn't have a lot of payoff. Yeah, they wanted to remind you of The Shining. I mean, again, in between these scenes, we do have just a moment of him back at the Overlook Hotel. Little Danny is riding his big wheel, rolling over those wooden floors and those rugs, creating those sound effects, and stopping outside room 237, just reminding you that Mrs. Massey is the thing he feared most. The ghost that hurt him, and the one that is coming for him. And again, I feel like should be the threat throughout this movie. She kind of parallels Rose the Hat. You could have used that. You could have told this story with Dan still a young child, and now a new woman is coming for him, like Mrs. Massey, and it's Rose the Hat. Was that the deal in The Shining? Because I wanted to watch The Shining before I saw this. I just didn't have the time. I rewatched it specifically because they say that these ghosts, they've turned Jack crazy. They try to destroy this family because they wanted Danny. Was that something from the book? Because I don't get that from the movie. I just rewatched it yesterday. I never got the feeling that these ghosts were haunting the Overlook because a kid with a really strong sense of The Shining showed up and they wanted that. But that's how they're going to recontextualize it in this movie. And King did the same thing. The steam is obviously something new from... Dr. Sleep. In the original book, it is said that it's Danny's psychic power that awakened the ghosts as much as it did and gave them the, as much power as they had. They were craving him. I think they referred to him as like a battery. He was powering them, but it wasn't that they wanted to get his steam so they could come back to life or something. That's a retcon. Yeah, I mean, I think about Carol Ann being the light to the ghost and poltergeist. I mean, living force, you know, that the dead are attracted to the living, particularly innocence and purity. That's always how I kind of took Danny, was that he was just, this movie even calls him a thousand watt bulb. Like he was just so bright that all the moths had to go to him. Consequently, again, it would be interesting if these early scenes, if we must have young Danny scenes, then it would be interesting to, yeah, set up more of a conflict that he's going to resolve at the end. It bugs me that he seems to be a, like a character that has everything contained when we meet him again in adulthood. There is no ghost after him, and he's not shining because it's annoying and not because it's tormented or destroyed his life. That seems wrong. Well... It did torment him in regards to constantly being bombarded with thoughts and seeing who was going to die. We never saw any evidence of that in no. this movie. No. And the fact that he became an alcoholic, I'm not exactly a fan of it. And in this movie, it is poorly explained. A lot of stuff in this movie is poorly explained here in the beginning. But let me talk about what's going good. I mean, I think there are some goods. I don't want to just rag on this movie for the entire podcast. I do like McGregor's performance here as he's kind of going back to train spotting and vomiting in the toilet again and bringing some of that there, showing the fight in the pool hall. I think this is McGregor at his best when he's at as a drunk. You mean for 10 seconds? Like he's literally, he will have one scene, one montage, not even a scene to be intoxicated and never again. Yeah, I wish it meant something more. Again, if all of a sudden he's learning that he was the reason his dad went crazy and tried to kill him and, and try to kill his mom and make that part of his tortured soul. I don't know what it is. Yeah, you get a little bit here. But again, I don't know why he's a violent drunk all of a sudden. 
I think it's a mistake to get him clean. Again, why can't that be his journey for this movie to find sobriety? The fact that they're going to introduce a problem and then the next thing you know, I have one incident with a cocaine mom and her toddler and now I'm just going to go and get clean, jump ahead eight years. They're just making it look so easy. Like, where is the struggle? Where's the drama? That's drama is watching people struggle with their demons. That's what we want to see here. It is creepy. I will give you this. I know you gave the book some shade for this mom and child in the bed, but the way it comes off in the movie is he left them knowing that it was probably unsafe and they did die. And so now he is haunted by the idea that he could have saved these two lives who were kind of like Wendy and him, much like his father turned a drink and left a wife and child behind. He did the same thing with his one night stand and this baby. It plays pretty well here in the movie not so much in the book if they would have that little detail like he i don't know finds an obituary or something and that's his motivation to get clean i think that would have been a great little addition they don't shy away in this movie from hurting kids like we're gonna see a kid get dug up in a shallow grave so yeah why not just tell us what happened and have that be part of his torture and why he maybe gets sober well does the shining lie because he will have a vision later when he is in his new apartment and clean he's got a 24 hours sober, he will see some flies and turn over and there they are in the bed with him. Is that who those were? I was trying to figure out if that was them or not. It was definitely the girl, but I do think it was the baby from American Sniper. (laughs) Perhaps. But my point is The Shining is telling him they're dead. Yeah. My problem is, here in the movie, they can't get into all the detail they did in the book where he realized the kid was being abused and being left home alone. You're supposed to kind of infer that. Oh, I got that it was being left home alone. Like, that woman's not taking her to the bar to play pool. Yeah, we. you don't need to go into great detail. The child is wandering around in the morning after, and she's laying in a bed of vomit. I get the child's neglected. But in the book, it was made clear there was an abusive uncle who would be the one who killed him. Yeah, I don't need that. I don't need giant family trees of all of this levels of abuse. Yeah, they died. Do it, train spotting, maybe got into some of that heroin, that cocaine, whatever. They all died. Here's the thing, though, is, okay... He didn't save them. He didn't stop drinking and become a white knight who stopped this woman from making choices on her own. And that's his guilt? <laughs> no, I, I think it counts now. I heard, I listened to your books and nachos. You make a point when they keep the woman alive and he knows that she's alive. That is a mistake of Stephen King. Here to imply that his neglect killed her or, yeah, he didn't intervene. That would haunt me. Well, they die later. Yes. Yes, they don't die there. But that's my point. They don't die because of his neglect. Right, but if he... But that makes all the difference in the world. They they, died because he didn't make sure that they were okay. I didn't take it that they died at this moment. Oh, they're in the same position they were in the bed that he left them. So that is exactly what happened. He could have called 911. It wouldn't have taken much effort to say, hey, I'm not sure if this woman's breathing come. He didn't even do the minimum. He robbed her of her money and now they're dead, and he's got to live with those shining ghosts. The baby looked older to me. Well, it looked like a rubber doll to me when we see it again, but I guess maybe I was influenced by the book. Jacob, did you think that when he left, they died at that moment? Because, I mean, the ghosts appear to him years later. Well, no, that's why I didn't even realize that those ghosts were them, because it's so much later. I didn't take it that they died right away. Oh, that he didn't check to see if she was breathing, so I assumed she was already dead, and the child just starved to death because no one was taking care of it. That's what I assumed happened. I swear I saw her move a little. She was not dead. He was afraid of her waking up. 
whatever it could be, I think the best read of why it would haunt him is that they died in this bed and he neglected to check on them. It would be much more a reason to be haunted is that I left this kid there with nobody to care for it and it died. That would work. I don't think this movie sells that. I didn't get it. On I watched this movie twice. I did not get that. I see in little ways this director chipping away at the things that really don't work in Dr. Sleep and emphasizing the things that will make it as creepy as Kubrick. I will compliment that Flanagan. At times he's trying to tap into Kubrick and you know what I realized rewatching The Shining and this? One of my other favorite directors, Wes Anderson, he uses symmetry a lot. It feels whimsy and quirky. Kubrick did that too. He would put things in the middle of the frame. He makes it feel terrifying. And I think Flanagan at times is able to replicate that feeling where Danny going into the bathroom, that bathtub goes from room 237 and cut to the box and then cut back. I feel like he did little things here and there to try to mimic Kubrick and they're more or less effective. They're doing all that they can to try and say it's all one piece. And God bless him for trying. We know it's not, but there's a lot of Kubrick stings. There's all of this thump, 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 like they do. Oh, yeah, they just took the score from Shining and threw it in here. The heartbeat score, I do love that they're selling a soundtrack. I'm like, I could just listen to an echocardiogram because it's mostly just a heartbeat. But I did think that was somewhat effective and very subtle. I didn't even realize it for about a third of the movie, how often that is playing. On the second viewing, I was paying more attention. I'm like, okay, they play that constantly but it does set a mood so we're eventually going to find out that dan is going to make his way to fraser new hampshire make new friends start to rebuild his life get clean and become a janitor at a nursing home to me that's where the movie should be right that's a creepy place when you think about it, that is a place where people go to die. It is upsetting for me to walk into those facilities. I think you could tell a very spooky story that would be like the Overlook here in that environment. They barely use that. I don't understand why this movie's called Dr. Sleep if his Dr. Sleep trick of helping people die is only two scenes. And it was more in the book, but I still was a little bit curious about that. It's a great title that doesn't really pay off. I felt like his skill of helping people pass over never impacted the climax of the book. Nothing. Never comes back in this movie. Yeah, that should be the movie. He's Dr. Sleep. He is allowing lives to pass while others are taking young lives and consuming and destroying them. You've got parallels going on there. How can it not have some kind of tether thematically? And they just drop it. Stuart, I think these things are bugging you a lot. I noticed them. They bugged me a little bit. I don't think to the extent that they're getting to you. But yeah, I was wondering why he gets this job. I don't know if he's a security guard, whatever, but he's going in. He's talking to these people as they're dying, helping them, you know, accept their fate. And then, like, they'll cut back and he's still working at the little choo-choo train that goes around the miniature version of the town. What is your job here? And, yeah, spend time in that hospital. Have the plot revealed through these ghosts that he can talk to, somehow warning him or something. It feels like that is where this plot should be taking place, not everywhere else it does in the film. It confused me in this movie because they talk about him volunteering at the hospice. And, yeah, he's still working on this little tiny town place in the book at least he's working as an orderly he's worked at that hospital for years that's his job i don't understand especially in this movie seeing it he's living this monastic lifestyle in this one room apartment with a bed and barely a kitchenette and he's working for minimum wage i would imagine at this tiny town and volunteering at a hospital he is doing a lot of penance and 
I don't see any joy he has in his life. Again, this is where the movie should be. Him trying to be sober, him trying to think beyond himself, atone, help these old people pass, start to use his power again. I mean, I don't think that's a mistake. I just feel like all of the setup is thrown away. Like Tiny Town, that was, I guess, supposed to be a new version of the Hedgemaids or something. You could have had a climax built around a miniature version of the town and running around in that town. What did it even mean? Why do we even do that? That cool cat, the cat that knows that you're about to die and will go and sit on you. I thought that was going to be like his partner for the film. What a great concept. I like that relationship he has with the cat way more than the relationship he develops with Abra. Do that movie. We don't need to suddenly make this about passing the baton to a millennial. There's a lot of opportunities that I feel King could have seized upon and missed. And let's face it, King had script approval. This is going to hew to his book, I think, too closely when we get things like Abra's birthday party with the spoons, because the book focuses a lot in these early pages on Abra as well. Abra being born, Abra throwing a fit because she knows 9-11 is coming. I'm not joking. Abra having the birthday party with the spoons. Here's the thing with Abra. Is she like some destined figure to save the world because this was part of my conflict with this film is we're used to because especially now playing is done all these dc and superhero marvel films everything has to be to save the world like every conflict has to be about the world coming to an end and our heroes got to come in and save it and this seems like because of all these magical powers like it might be going that way but then it ends up being a very small film it's just about saving a girl Ultimately, Abra is where Danny is when we meet her. She's five years old, but she's not going to have a traumatic experience that causes her to stunt her power. She's only going to allow that power to grow. So part of why she becomes a messianic figure, if you will, if the most shining kid ever is because she didn't have trauma. She has parents that are very accepting. They feel like very modern parents. I mean, they're an interracial couple. That feels modern. And the fact that they know she has this power, they call it like a transistor radio, and the mom will even ask the kid later. She's like, how's my mom doing? I'm about to go see her. Is she going to pull through on her latest sickness or not? I mean, they seem to be very accepting and promoting of her gift. They're not trying to stifle her in any way. So I think that's why Abra has all this steam. That's my take on it anyway. But I don't like that. And, you know, the book tried to do something with, it was actually the half-niece of Dan that we would find out that Jack Torrance had actually had an affair with a woman, and that is the mother of this Abra. Yes, exactly like the Rage Carry 2. The father went off and had an affair, and the father's the one passing the psychic genes. I, You know what? I would tweak that. Why can't this be Dan's kid? You know, he was drunk a lot of years, he made a lot of hookups, and then all of a sudden, maybe he's not even sober yet, or maybe he's going around making that 12-step apology that you're supposed to do, and suddenly he realizes, oh, I have these responsibilities, and she's the reason that he starts using his shining again. There's better ways to tweak it than a psychic conversation on a billboard wall for eight years. I absolutely hate that. I actually am rolling with it. I understand there's a lot of stories not told that you wish were told. You're wishing you're hearing any other story than the one King wrote, basically. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way to make this book good. You have to throw huge chunks of it away. And maybe because I didn't read that book, I'm just going with this film. And my biggest problem 
in this film is the lack of character development with Dan Torrance. I wish they made Abra more important in his life instead of just, oh, I got to save this little girl. It feels like a bigger film than that. And so that's its kind of shortcoming. But for the most part, I'm going along with it. And maybe it's because I had low expectations going in because, oh, you're going to give me a shining to the sequel. Okay, impress me. And I didn't read that book. So I didn't have a whole lot of comparison. Oh, they're doing this part from the book that I really hated. I don't want to see it on the screen. And there's a lot of stuff in that book I didn't like. And even before rereading it, my memories of the book were more negative than they actually were at the time of my review and are now having finished the reread, but I'm with Jacob when I'm watching this movie, is this first half hour of montage when we're jumping through the years and seeing the birthday parties and things, it's all going very quick and it's all very convenient, but it's not what I would consider bad. I'm not trying to say it's bad. We could talk about the skill that Flanagan is bringing and directing it, which is pretty good, or we could talk about the fact that all of these things are setups for things that are not going to pay off in the second half of this story, which is where I'm angry about. Like this, and all of the detail work, and all that you're working about establishing Dan as Dr. Sleep is meaningless when we finally get the, the idea that Abra is the magic shining user that everyone cares about. She is the MacGuffin that everyone's got to chase. It just throws the whole story out of whack. Why do they connect? I take it to mean because he starts shining with these old people and using his power for, to have them relive their life as they pass on, that that actually opens the portal. He's not even concerned that he comes home and people are writing hello on his wall. Like, it's just treated matter-of-factly like, oh yeah, now I just have this psychic friend, my pen pal. <laughs> Is this Dion Warwick? I would go along that this person who had this traumatic experience as a young child with ghosts, uh, yeah, at least they're not haunting him. They're just writing on his wall. You see, that feels like a disconnect from what we've been told because is he or is he not afraid of using his power? At certain points in this movie, he is saying, don't use your power, Abra. You've got to hide and conceal it and lock things up in boxes. And the other time, he's like letting it rip. I don't get their stance on him. No, it, it, he's poorly defined. <laughs> I don't ever think he's afraid of using his power. He uh, just doesn't like what he sees all the time. But he uses his power to help his friend doctor find a watch on a soap dish. I mean, but that was the first day of his sobriety, too. What they were telling me, I thought, was I drink so I don't have to feel my shining just like Jack Torrance drank so that he wouldn't know his shining. I'm not even sure Jack Torrance ever was psychic either. Well, they implied. If you read The Shining, there was some indication that he did, and there was some indication. You could follow that trail. That father had it. It's passed along patrilineally, and because Jack turned to drink, he was overcome by ghosts rather than being able to use his power to expel the ghosts. Well, it's not just paternally, because Abra's mother was Jack's daughter, so it was passed on there too. But I don't think... Danny is afraid of The Shining. He's using it to help people, and I don't know why he would be afraid since he's learned how to lock up every ghost he doesn't like. Then he should not be a tortured character. He should be very well adjusted, and he should have succeeded in life. As for Abra, I get the feeling he knows it's a little girl because he writes on the board, you know, it's go to school, things like that. He knows he is talking to a psychic little girl who's what, one town over? They do an eight-year jump in between. The first time they communicate is 2011. The next time we see them talking and he's saying, are you up for school and all of that, it's this year. It's 2019. So again, she'll call him her new friend when she goes downstairs in 2019. 
I don't know how often they've been talking. I don't know what they know about each other. I don't know why it took eight years for this get-together. I don't understand any of these relationships. Meanwhile, we're seeing the True Knot develop its ranks. In parallel, as Abra is getting stronger, they're both getting weaker and adding Snakebite Andy. This is another thing I think should have been cut. In the book, they really go into some of the love triangles of the True Knot. Andy is a 30-something character who's very angry at men because she was molested as a child, but they need her psychic ability to impose her will on people, to, they call it, push. And here... I don't think Andy is a big enough character that we need to see an indoctrination into the ranks. I think that she's indoctrinated here. We see her use her push power once, then she's going to die. I don't know that we needed to spend the time here when we could have spent more on Abra and Dan. Yeah, this is X-Men, right? We've talked about comic influence on Stephen King. It feels like this group of psychic vampires, they're the bad X-Men. Rose is Magneto. You know, any person with the Shining, I guess they can have different specialties, like have mind control powers over you. And so they're trying to recruit people at times to help their ranks. And then other times they just want to eat them. It gets somewhat confusing with me coming in as an outsider not having read the book trying to piece this all together i'm just taking oh, okay everyone with the shine they're all x-men and they're just dividing into two teams which takes us far away from the realm of horror movie for one thing it's like wow that's not scary at all it does feel closer in king's realm to Firestarter than it ever does the shining when i read the book i was feeling that i'm like with this little girl with the magic powers that everyone cares about i'm like this doesn't feel doesn't have the claustrophobia again you were trapped in a snowbound hotel now it's like people are spread all over the country i don't even know they're moving their trailer to and fro i don't know half the time where they're going right now they're in long island new york indoctrinating uh yeah this 15 year old girl who likes to seduce men and then i guess carve a scarlet a is that the scarlet letter that she's carving into his cheek i thought she's just doing two like little snake bites that's why she's called snake bite andy oh okay Overall, I had this problem with the book. I really hoped Flanagan would fix it in the movie. He didn't. These not, they're really bad villains, right? At no point, as you mentioned, you keep going back to the claustrophobia, but the thing with the Overlook was it was inescapable and it was all-powerful. It was able to put these evil twins, the blood from the elevator, the old lady in room 217, these things are inescapable. Here... Or 237, depending on which book or movie. Yeah, well. But here, this true knot are a bunch of starving people who are dying on their own. And all they do, we watch them kill two children. They are child murderers, which is bad. But if all they can do is pick on prepubescence, that doesn't make them scary in a they are a danger to an adult kind of way. At no point do I think Dan can't stand up to them. I get that. And you know what? That's a mature stance on evil. We are going to see a multidimensional portrayal of evil. It is not all-powerful and completely malevolent. They're humans, too. They are just trying to get by. I think the idea, the subtext of all of this, the theme that I can connect through all of the main characters here, is they're all children. And some children, when they experience abuse, go bad. Like Snakebite Andy, she goes and it becomes a crusade to hurt all men. I'm going to seduce and destroy as many men in movie theaters as I can. And then you have people like Abra, who lives a very privileged existence, is nurtured, is loved. Maybe she's got some judgment coming from other school kids, but by and large, she's allowed to become a bright light. And so it's almost a story of class between 
two different Americas is the way that I would look at. I just wish that there was more sense of danger. They go on the run from Rose the Hat at a certain point. I don't know why you run from her when she's the last remaining of her people. Yeah, no, I I get what you're saying. They're losing strength. As this movie proceeds, they only get weaker and weaker, which makes them an inadequate foil. It suddenly begs the question, well, and I've been saying that all along. It seems to be the instinct of King at every moment. Why is he making it so easy for them to solve their problems? And that's what I'm saying when I feel like this should be about the end of the world, like a big Marvel movie, but it's not. It's about just a couple of people, like one wants to eat the soul of another one and another guy's trying to stop her. You got to kind of work out that tone and and that justification. And I don't have a problem with it being a small story. I've said with a lot of Marvel films, hey, I just wish it was about this little side character doing this thing over here. I don't need it to be the end of the world every time, but that's how this one kind of feels, even though they're going to kill everyone off and there's only one psychic vampire left. She should be raising a cult or something if these are the stakes in the film. I think Snake might... Andy should have the role that Rose the Hat does because she was an abused child that makes her like Dan who had traumatic ghost abuse and you know abuse from his father as well those three make sense to connect because they're all children that have befallen these magical powers and how they're using them makes them distinct and interesting that would be where you'd want to have it the fact that that we got to keep going back to this lady with the hat feels like a mistake because there's nothing in the hat she doesn't have enough tricks to pull it off. I will say there is one super creepy scene in this movie, and it is when they abduct the kid in Iowa, the baseball star. That was absolutely the one of the most gory things I've ever seen King write when it was in the book. Here, yeah, it is creepy, and it does show that these people need to be stopped. You are setting them up as ultimate villains here. You talk about all this kind of child abuse and maybe leaving the baby there, the baby died. But here, you're going to see, with no shadow of a doubt, these people are going to abduct a nine-year-old, take him, and kill him as slowly as possible, because the longer he suffers, the more steam he's going to give off. It is definitely... Definitely a disturbing scene that feels like it's almost out of a different movie. Part of what's horrific about it is that we understand their plight. They're just trying to live. The worst part is when they try to make him feel good. Like the kids being tied down to stakes and they're like, you were a really good ball player, kid. You were the best. Trying to make him feel good while they're sharpening their knives. That contrast really just makes me sick in my stomach. But yes, ultimately, what we need to consume is your fear. So we have to make it hurt. Not only are we going to kill you, but we're not even going to make it easy. We're going to torture you. We're going to push every little bit of steam out of you and canister it in these bootlegger barrels or whatever. I thought they were thermoses, you know, like they got them with their lunchbox. (laughs) But we're, yeah, we're told when the giant from Twin Peaks dies. Yeah, I love that he's in here. Yeah, I'm like, oh, is that the giant? He was also in Star Trek and Witches of Eastwick. I think he was Lurch and Adam's family, too. (laughs) Yeah, but it was fun to see him in here. But, like, we're told as he's dying, like, he was a king? And now he's living in a trailer park. It's weird disconnects all over the place that stops me from fully getting behind this film. I'm having a fun time, but I'm having a hard time trying to really enjoy this film on a deeper level because, yeah, there are all these disconnects. Yeah, I wanted to follow up with you, Arnie, because you mentioned in your plot summary something that I feel like the movie could have spent a little more time on. There is some lines when they're hanging out around the trailer about there being less steam in this world, that part of the reason why they got to like drive to Iowa to get this one specific kid is because there's nothing for miles and miles between that kid that they could eat. Are we to understand that evil has gotten so rampant in the world that it's consumed all the good? Is this a statement about evil now having nothing left to consume because goodness is gone? 
that's not how I took it. I mean, the way that they drop lines about cell phones and what I would think is anybody who is psychic would be seen now as having schizophrenia. You hear voices, oh, let's put you on some lithium or something like that. I would think that they've killed the magics in the world through science. Yeah, it feels like any elf or any Christmas movie that has to do with Santa. Oh, the modern world has lost its faith in magic and we got to clap and believe and it will come back. That's how it played out to me. Oh, they have cell phones. Everyone's too busy playing Flappy Bird or whatever the modern video game is on your cell phone that they can't tap into their psychic powers. That seems a little lazy. Yeah, it felt lazy when I heard that line in the movie. (laughs) What I heard that I thought was interesting, we have this character Crow Daddy that seems to be the more often than not lover of Rose the Hat. Who I really, I swear to God, I thought it was played by Kid Rock for like the first five minutes. (laughs) That would have been a fun get. That would have been been hilarious to populate these four non-blondes, like maybe Papa Roach could be here. Like, why not have all those 90s grunge new metal stars just like languishing? Because God knows they probably are in 2019 looking a lot like this trailer park here. But he makes the comment, once they find out that they have a looker, they're killing this baseball kid in their gruesome fashion and they have a psychic vibration because Abra is so connected to The Shining she actually knows this kid who has The Shining is also being tortured and she tells them to stop. Now he's like, we've got to get this kid before her parents put her on Paxil. That was the only thing that I got to the idea that the potential... Young people today have so much shine, but because of the pharmaceutical industry, it's a different kind of abuse. People don't beat their kids today, but they do sedate them. They get them appropriate medical attention? I don't know if that's abuse. (laughs) I don't know. It's trying to read something in his comment in the fact that we need to get her shine before it's medicated. I don't think this movie rewards you for asking deeper questions like that. I'll just, but whether I liked it or not, it will not reward you for going deep. The other thing, though, and it's in the book and I feel it's in this movie as well, is shine is strongest in children. And as you grow older, you lose it. Some people lose it altogether. In the case of Dan, he's just not the thousand watt light bulb that he used to be. They want to get Abra. In the book, it's really interesting because Rose knew about Abra, but she was letting her age like a fine wine until the perfect moment where she would be producing the most steam. Here in the movie, it's like she just found out about Abra, but you want to get her before she gets too old and that steam becomes diseased or becomes lesser. She's not unlike Pennywise in the sense that we're essentially talking about child predators. We're talking about people that are targeting children. I mean, it feels that way. I mean, if they have any sense of menace to them, it's for that motivation. It's the fact that they don't target anyone else but healthy, happy, shining children that makes them, uh, I guess the word is scary. Repulsive might be more in line with how I'm feeling about this group. They're gross. They're not necessarily scary. Yeah, there's nothing in this movie that is frightening. That is, I think, a difference between it and Kubrick, is that Kubrick still can unnerve me and make me feel like there's some real scary things going on, and this does not. I thought the attack in the baseball here, that was scary. I legitimately think that that was upsetting, and I thought that really worked in horror movie terms. Yeah, this coming, you know, there was a scene with the baby earlier, and I, it, wow, they really aren't afraid of going after children in this movie. That's, I don't know if that's something to praise, but they're willing to go there. I think it's the theme of the movie. Again, they're looking at all the ways that children process trauma. 
And some people go bad and they become abusers themselves and some people fall into addiction and some people like Abra are going to try to make the world a better place. And here she's screaming at the top of her psychic lungs, murder, except of course, Danny wakes up and looks at his bedroom mirror first and sees it as red room. There's your poster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had to do it, right? That's the only reason to have this stupid blackboard wall is so they could do that bit. I was just worried about Danny getting kicked out after that because his landlady seems very stern, <laughs> yes. willing to keep people out. And now he's got murder cracked into this chalkboard wall. Yeah, yeah more if he ever gets implicated for anything, he's yes. going to seem like a psychotic <laughs> with this murder in the wall there. I actually thought there'd be a scene where he'd be covering that up. I, I was legitimately worried about him losing his apartment. But you know, I'm going to say this. I'm hard on this because that book is bad. And the worst thing about it was that astral projection. But I do think Flanagan turns a negative into an extreme positive. I think some of the coolest imagery that goes on is not from recreating The Shining. It is by showing this astral projection. It reminded me a lot of A Nightmare on Elm Street, the way Abra approaches the window and then like the house rotates and then she kind of falls and she's inside Rose's head seeing her go grocery shopping. I mean, and I mean this as a compliment. It's just very good camera use. I didn't know what was going on with the house rotating. It, it is the best visuals of the film. Yeah, we'll see Rose go inside Abra's head later. I wish this was more of the film. You, Stuart, you're saying you want more claustrophobia, like The Shining. I think there is a way you could do it here because they talk about your mind being like these filing cabinets and yeah, spend more time discovering things that way. Yeah, they're good visuals anyway, and we saw a little bit of it. Again, I'm going to plug Haunting of Hill House. He did that with the hung woman in that episode. I, yeah, it just throws us off balance. It's just a cool change of gravity that really allows us to feel like things are happening, even though basically, yeah, on the page, it's just a bunch of text messages. People are just psychically talking to each other and taunting. Yeah, when Rose finds out that Abra's looking, like we see Rose astral project, I guess, but it's just really cool. Like the way she's just kind of floating above the earth and then things rotate. I wish this was more of the film. E even if it wasn't any deeper than this film is, I would have just enjoyed it more because the visuals are so unique. I don't know if I would have gotten bored of it or not, but again, it drove home to me how weak a villain our lead not member here is because Abra is untrained. She's unproven, and yet she tricks Rose into coming in into her mind and rips her hand apart in a file cabinet, traps her there so that Rose can barely escape. It's like, I want there to be danger. I want the Fratellis to feel like they will kill the Goonies. And here, it's like Abra can never be hurt. Every time somebody comes for her, she's more powerful, she's smarter, and I just, it was a problem of the book that I feel carries on here. It's just the lack of menace. I mean, couldn't you have Abra? Because my mind was going places because I hadn't read the books. So I didn't know where the story was going. So I'm, I'm just trying to figure things out as I'm watching it. I'm like, couldn't she be Anakin? Because, yes, I definitely thought there was Force Ghost in this movie. And she finds out, oh, look at this. I was able to defeat Rose. Like, I am all-powerful. Have that be the real danger. They could have gone somewhere with this. Again, it feels very flat. They introduce some cool visuals, some intriguing storylines, and then it doesn't feel like they ever develop it much. Well, I mean, great power, great responsibility. She is too young to wield this much control. If at the same time that she was hurting Rose, she also unlocked the Overlook Ghost or something. Like if she is using her power recklessly and thus endangering the characters at the same time she's maybe winning this spat in the supermarket or whatever. Okay. But it just seems that there's no cost for her being this powerful and hurting. Like I kept thinking with the way that she gloated, oh, I really hurt her and 
lot. Like, I'm like, that's going to blow back on you. And it never does. We're expected to treat that as a cheer line. Well, she does get overconfident because they set a trap for Rose. Rose doesn't come herself now because the members of the knot are like, Abra's got your number. She's been in your head. Your hand is bleeding. So you hang back. The rest of us are going to go and get this girl. And Abra calls on Dan. Dan gets his friend, you know, this friend who has given him everything, gave him a job, got him an apartment, everything like that. His name's Billy Freeman, Cliff Curtis here, who... Billy Plot Device. I mean, <laughs> yes, it's very sad that there's no point to him. This is the role Cliff Curtis plays in every movie he's in, though. It's yeah. true. We've seen him in a bunch of stuff. Yeah, we were just talking about him. He's done a million things, yeah. <laughs> yes. But here, he gets one moment. I like his moment when they're digging up the body, and he tells the story of the dead deer he found that rotted, and he never hunted again. And Dan and Billy set this trap where they're going to have Abra astral project, and so the members of the Knot think she's there in the woods. And again, the Knot is so weak. I mean... A couple of guys, one of whom, as far as I can tell, has never handled a firearm in his life. I don't know when Dan would have shot people, but these two kill everybody in the knot. And you talk about Billy with that. I, th I thought it was a fun little monologue he gives about hunting that deer as well. It's like, oh, yeah, no problem. Just shoot some people now. Like, make some kind of drama. People with conflict about what they have to do based on their past. This film does not want to do that. Well, what they do is that, yeah, they get them all down except for Snakebite Andy. And again, they've highlighted this character as someone above the others in terms of her menace. And so for a, just a second, she gets Dan down on his knees. It's about to make him go to sleep so she can shoot him. And Billy intervenes with the gun. And her last laugh as she dies is to command him to kill himself. What this does is it unsettles Dan's sobriety because suddenly there's been major consequences for his action. Abra is taken prisoner, the father is killed, his best friend is killed. And that's where I was going when you said there's no consequences for Abra. Here, she becomes overconfident. She thinks that I have bested Rose, I can just astrally project here and let these guys kill all the knot. But Crow Daddy is smarter than the rest, and he went to Abra's house. Abra does lose her father, a very underdeveloped character, but he is killed and Abra is kidnapped, Abra does suffer a loss. It is, her overconfidence is her weakness. But then it is solved, again, so quickly. And then he just double seat belts her in, is driving her back to Rose the Hat, and it's not really hard for Dan to just suddenly take possession of the child and make them shine crash into a tree. And I do have a problem with this because they have the line, oh, you think you're immortal, so why would you wear seat belts? Well, there's a very good reason to wear a seatbelt, even if you don't think you're immortal. You're going to get pulled over a lot by cops. <laughs> I have been pulled over for not wearing my seatbelt before. It's a pain in the ass. I don't know if you're a bunch of roaming vampire gypsies. I don't know if you're worried about the cops. And maybe they can make them do stuff. I mean, you know, we've seen with Snakebite Andy that she can charm them. She can say, oh, you don't want to give me a ticket. Yeah, but Crow Daddy isn't with Andy at that moment. Crow Daddy knows Andy is dead. I think Crow Daddy should have put on that seatbelt because you don't want to be pulled over when you're kidnapping a kid. Yeah, no, I, I, your point is very valid. And they set Crow Daddy up to be more menacing than the others. He was willing to sacrifice everybody. Keep that in mind. He knew that they were all going to die. He knew that they were walking into a trap and that was worth it for him to be able to capture Abra. 
he thought that sacrificing his entire family was worth the trade-off of getting the quote-unquote whale. The kid was so much steam that he could build a new family with it, with Rose. And so that sets him up to be something that's going to be a major figure in the climax, and then he's just thrown through a windshield and dies colliding with a tree. No, this is where it feels like this is made for that Marvel audience. This is an F yeah moment. We got him. We tricked him, and he flew through there, and he died. I feel like with the horror film, there's a different sense when you get death and this one doesn't have that vibe this yeah it feels more like an action movie at times and wouldn't it be so much more scary if like a whole bunch of people from the knot juiced up and they were all coming as a group more powerful than they've ever been to get abra and oh my god how are we going to stop them we need to get reinforcements we need to go to the overlook and have a berserker to help us out versus Well, we killed, like, almost all of them, including Crow Daddy, who seems the best of them, really. So, why are we going to run halfway across the country? (laughs) Yeah, here's the thing. When I came into this, I couldn't wait to get to the Overlook. Now that we're here, I'm thinking there is no reason I can think of at all for them to go back to that hotel. The ghosts are contained. There's no evil there. The story, thematically, has very little to do with any of that. And frankly, it's the worst part of the movie. There's no joy to be had about driving to Colorado and reliving Kubrick's film. That's why I said I couldn't imagine watching Kubrick's film and coming into this one. Mm. Because the scenes where they're recreating, I mean, it's theft. It's, you know, the helicopter shot of the car driving through the mountains. and Yeah, except it's at night instead of day. They got the same music going. A lot of CGI, but yes. yes. No helicopter shots this time. I thought that I wanted to have a retro fantasy of going back there, but this movie hasn't set that up. If the beef is about Crow Daddy and Lady with a Hat and 90s rockers, then keep it in the nursing home. Let's just have Dr. Sleep using the old people in some way and using life as it's expelled to stop people taking life prematurely. Let's have that be the battle. I don't see why at all. Again, his explanation. It was a stupid strategy. Things there hurt people like us. And maybe it'll hurt them. I don't know. Well, then don't... (laughs) This is not the time to test that theory if it's that thin. And those ghosts aren't contained to the Overlook. We saw the old lady in Danny's bathtub as a little kid. And we'll see that again at the end here. Like, they don't have to stay at the hotel. Yes. Again, don't get me wrong. I wish I was watching that prequel about the building of the Overlook. But we're not. So let's not do that. Let's walk away from that. We gave up on that idea. That said, I do kind of want to go back to the Overlook. Like, that is the most intriguing thing in the trailer. Like, if we weren't doing this as a retrospective, that is the thing that probably would have got me into theaters, is going back to that hotel. Like, you kind of want to go back there. If they didn't blow it up in the first one and it's still around, it's that sequel thing, but you want to see it. My biggest problem is... That hotel's still on the grid? Like, they're able to turn the power and everything back on, (laughs) even though it's been closed 40 years? Well, it has its own boiler, so I think it's creating some of its own power. But uh, listen, if we had a sequel to The Shining and we didn't have this stuff, I think you guys would be complaining. Oh, I would be, yeah. I would be complaining if I felt like the movie was leading us back to The Shining. This has been so removed for all of their attempts to emulate the camera and the sounds that we heard in Kubrick's movie. I haven't felt any of that here. And again, I had just watched The Shining, walked into this minutes later, nothing. I'm getting none of that. 
So to go and do that just feels like a very strange mashup. It's a remix that will not satisfy where you've gone and will not please me to see you make hay of a classic. But the best moment in this entire movie for me was when we get Dan going into the Overlook on his own (laughs) and he's walking through and he goes into that bar and he gets a drink from his dad and a Stuart convulses. <laughs> I was like, this is your favorite moment. Okay, good. I gave you that moment. Yeah, because I thought I knew where you were going, Arnie, and then you switched it on me. But yes, I w- during the scene, he's talking to his dad. I'm like, oh shit, did they get Jack Nicholson and de or did they get Christian Slater? You know, one of those celebrities that's known for looking and being able to talk like him. I'm like, who do they get to cameo him? I can't wait. I would have been happier with Steven Weber than Henry <laughs> Thomas, the kid from E.T looking like he's growing his hair out like David Crosby here. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even recognize who this was. I had to look it up. It was Henry Thomas, who I don't know if you guys keep on Henry Thomas, but he was just recently arrested for DUI. So maybe tapping into Jack Torrance too much. But he was also the star of Hunting of Hill House. Yes, I know that. (laughs) All these people have working relationships with the director. So he had an end to get this. But I was shocked. I mean, we've seen this so much lately with CGI. We know that they can do a better Jack Nicholson than what we're looking. I mean, it looks nothing like Jack Nicholson. There are so many Jack Nicholson impersonators. That's the best one they could find. (laughs) Why not? If this is what you're stuck with and you feel like you have to bring the character back. It's kind of interesting that he's now Lloyd the bartender. I think Jack... Torrance as a character coming back if you're going back to the Overlook is something you want to do why not just have it McGregor why not just McGregor playing his dad that to me would be more plausible than this man that looks nothing like him and we're supposed to pretend this is Jack Nicholson what is Jack Nicholson doing why can't it be an old Jack Nicholson he supposedly retired yeah I mean I guess for lots of reasons I hear there's an Alzheimer's issue as well but maybe you don't want to bring the actual actor back but that obviously to me whatever condition he's in the more decrepit the better (laughs) if you just have him standing there giving you that frozen stare at the bar that's all I would have needed to be totally freaked out i agree but i understand that they did not want to cgi the people and i respect that decision i'm iffy on some of this if you can't get the actual actors back and jack nogleson's i don't think he's an option even to stand there i think he and sean connery are off in the old actor's home never to be seen again only to be mourned upon their passing so you can't get him but What do you do? You know, in old days, recasting is all you could do before there were all these computer effects. Recasting isn't the end of the world, but I don't envy the person who not only has to stand in and be the character. Steven Weber had an uphill climb there just trying to be Jack Torrance, but now you're trying to be Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance in a sequel to that movie You're set up to fail. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to blame the director on this because he wants to hire his buddy that did House on Haunted Hill, whatever that's called with him. Uh, No, you get someone that's down on like Sunset Boulevard in front of the Man Chinese Theater that looks like Jack Nicholson in the 80s and do it that way. You don't. That is my problem. Like I wanted to so be into this moment. Like I thought it was a great little moment. Yes. Here's the dad who was an alcoholic, tried to chop up his family, trying to get his son to become an alcoholic again. It would have resonated so much more if I doesn't have to be Jack Nicholson, but if I could believe this person in some way looked, sounded, acted like that actor. I so desperately needed Dan Torrance to be a character in this movie, and he's just been sort of a guardian, letting Abra steal the whole show away. Here was his moment, finally, to reconnect to that dad that he had already brought up in AA meetings. 
I feel like the speech that Jack Torrance or Lloyd gives is actually good. If we could see a more credible visualization of Jack Nicholson from 1980, I think this moment would be dynamite. I would have preferred if they didn't try to go with Jack Nicholson. You just can't do that. I would have preferred if they did go with Lloyd the bartender. Try to bring somebody who looks like that, but maybe he says his name is Jack the bartender now. You know, something and something along those lines because Jack Torrance, we saw his dead frozen body. We saw he was in that old photo, the manager of the hotel is what he had been promised. He was going to get to be the manager. Here, this seems like a misstep. And the director's in a double bind. He can't win. You can't not bring him back. And yet you can't possibly bring him back in any way that's satisfying. It's a lose-lose situation. It is. And yet, I would argue, we have seen many times in the last several years, them make Michael Douglas look like he did in Wall Street. We've seen them do it. And it isn't a long scene. And they have the money for this production. They could have made this moment work if they had prioritized it. I'm not going to say that without Jack Nicholson's involvement, you should create a CGI Jack Nicholson. No, get anyone and have them look like Jack Nicholson. Get Henry Thomas, if that's who you want but make him look like jack nicholson you have to get the rights for that image though i mean you can't just do that is that the issue is jack nicholson even in a place where he could well he'd have an estate somebody could sign off on that someone would take that check from what I've read, this was the director's choice to go this way. And for me, this scene is kind of a double lose. Not only that it doesn't look like Jack Nicholson, if there was a danger that if Dan Torrance took that drink, he was going to pick up that axe and chop up Abra just like his dad tried to do to him, I would have felt more invested, more terror in that scene. They never want to make him that father figure to Abra. I never get that sense in this film where it's the same relationship. And, and so for me, it kind of fails both. One, it's so jarring when you finally do see Jack Torrance. And then even if Dan and he took that drink, I don't think he's going to go chop up his family and do anything bad. That's exactly right. We need to believe that his sobriety is in jeopardy. And they've had these really not convincing scenes of, yeah, Ewan McGregor coming in and seeing the dad with the knife in him and grabbing the bottle for a second and then not drinking. He has eight years of sobriety. If he was still struggling with those demons, it would just make this moment of temptation haunting. And instead, it's just like everything else in this movie, really easy to brush away the glass and say, okay, let's go kick four non-blonde ass. The recreation of the sets and things is very well done. And my actual favorite moment is when Rose is walking through the hotel and gets to see the blood come out of the elevator and everything. She's astrally projecting. She doesn't really want to go in there, but she sees the typewriter and everything. We get the setup again, and, and we see Dan on the stairs with an axe like Wendy had been. Where is this happening? You're saying this is a astral projection of someone's mind? Rose doesn't come in at first. Remember, she walks in astrally projected, and then they kick her out, and then she has to come in physically. But I'm saying this is the real hotel. We're expected to believe that they left the typewriter. They never reopened. That's what's crazy. It's still on the grid. They said it shut down after that whole incident in The Shining. The police didn't take anything for evidence. Why would you do that? Who would even need to know about that? Like, you could still have a successful lodge in the summer. I don't know. Say you got a killer frozen in your maze. All I'm saying is they're having you believe that's left exactly as we last saw it from the movie, which to me would say this is in Danny's mind projected and not actually the condition of the hotel as it would be if you were to go there 30 years later. Yeah, it's where it was left in our minds at the end of that movie and nothing has ever been touched. 
Yeah, and then it's just about, yeah, recall. Remember the hedge maze? Let's go there. And suddenly Abra is like the member of some street gang, like racing by this woman and stabbing her. Are you a jet or a shark, lady? What is this? (laughs) But I like when... Rose finally wises up and grabs her by the neck. I mean, again, I want to feel menace. I want to feel she is actually a danger here. And there's two on one, Abra and Dan versus Rose. So. And she's not in danger. This Again, she's using herself as bait so a giant box can roll up behind this woman. <laughs> that was macking me funny. I just want to say that did not work at all. That, yeah, I never... In my mind, imagine when that old lady showed up in little Danny's bathroom that a giant box came out of the faucet and closed around her. I thought that was a metaphor in his mind. That's where the ghosts were kept. I didn't think that was like something you had to physically think about. When we had this fight in the Colorado room on the stairs and all of that with people psychically flinging each other around, like it's not horror and it's not action. I don't know what you want to call it. It's not good. But isn't it King? Like he had hedge animals running around in his book, The Shining. I don't know. I feel like King is willing to go to some of these places. Well, in the book, Dr. Sleep, it was a trailer park. Like there was no hotel to exploit. And some of this stuff is Kubrick's iconography. I mean, it doesn't look like the TV movie. Let me just put it that way. They are following Kubrick's hotel. No, but I'm talking about King's willing to go more comic booky. Again, Firestarter, that's like an X-Men spinoff. In his books, I'm not saying The Shining, the movie, but in his books, I get the sense that he doesn't have quite an issue with this. Yeah, he seems to not want to dramatize conflict. Endings particularly are bad, but just like we never see the fight. Here, okay, she seems to get the upper hand, like Dan gets some fatal nick on his leg and she's sucking his steam out and saying it tastes like whiskey. And then, okay, here come the ghost and she's just gone. She's taken out of the movie. That was easy. And suddenly all of that true not stuff is completely evaporated. And why didn't they bring the guy in the dog costume to blow job <laughs> back as a ghost? Like, uh, that's the one I was looking for. I wanted that so bad as... Rose was going into different rooms. She ends up in room 237, but I really wanted her to open the door and just see that dog guy again, just because that is the most crazy fucking moment of a crazy fucking movie. And so to not get that, but even the ghosts they bring back, the twins and Mrs. Massey. Those twins look awful, yeah. They're as bad as the Jack Nicholson replacement here. And I blame the director on this one. They're not filmed or lit in a way that gives them the menace that they had in Kubrick's film. Yeah, agreed. Uh, there's not, maybe Massey is the closest. The lady in the tub is, I mean, because it's a naked lady with rod on her. I mean, like that's still a little bit upsetting. But mostly, again, you're looking at Abra. She's running around. She's so much faster than possessed Danny. Here he's doing his father's limp with the axe and trying to get her. Like, there's no way that she can't outrun him and win. Uh, they've done an excellent job eradicating any sense of tension from this scenario. It's very different when you're chasing a five-year-old and when you're chasing a 13-year-old. A 13-year-old can definitely take care of herself, outrun you, do the smarter things that you can't always trust a five-year-old to do. Not to mention she's the most shining kid that's ever been. I mean, she could be use her powers or she could just literally run faster than this guy can now that he's bleeding out from the leg. They could have gone real tragic and have her have to lock him up in a box. Instead, they're going to do the self-sacrifice thing. Mm Mm-hmm. No, what they're going to do is suck King off. They're going to tell King, you know how, this is my interpretation of King's words, you know how they redeemed The Shining? They gave him the ending from his book. 
they finally in Kubrick universe had a Torrance forget that the boiler is there. The ghosts don't realize and the ghost runs down to try to stop the boiler and the human being inside the ghost delays it long enough that the overlook burns down. This was the ending that King wanted for Kubrick's movie. He finally gets it here. Yeah, it does feel like, yes, hurting, really, hurting the artistic vision of Kubrick, mauling it, sucking the steam out of it, however you want to describe, that's how I'm experiencing this climax. It does not feel in any way fun or frightening to be back here in this way. And it's over, like the place blows, it burns, Danny reverts to his childhood self, and it gets real goopy here at the end, where like he's hugging his mom, and then he appears as a spirit to tell Abra to shine on, and... I thought the camera was gonna pull back, Arnie, you said Force Ghost, I thought we were gonna have Ewan McGregor, Scatman... (laughs) Maybe Jack? Yeah, and maybe Jack, like here's the redeemed Darth Vader... (laughs) I really thought we were going to get three Force Ghosts, just like at the end of Return of the Jedi. <laughs> yeah. And I think they tried to fool us for a little bit into thinking that he lived and he's standing in her bedroom, but he's speaking in an echo. And like, I think we know instantly he burned up. Was anyone fooled? I wasn't. <laughs> uh, yeah. Only in that I bought a ticket. <laughs> oh, I know where you're going. Let's find out. Jacob, Stuart, how much shine is there to Dr. Sleep? Jacob. Here's my perspective. I love the classic Kubrick film, The Shining. I don't have a whole lot of love for King. I don't even remember. You claim there's a miniseries made on The Shining. I don't know. I have a vague memory of kissing and missing or something. (laughs) But I haven't read Dr. Sleep. I'm not invested in what King is doing. I'm invested in what's on the screen. and, and, And that's where I'm at. So as I'm watching this, I'm not, well, this is where I wish the book would have gone. So why didn't they fix that in the movie? If there are problems in the book, then yes, I do blame the writer or the director. You're adapting something. It is your job to fix issues. I don't know what those issues were, though, because I didn't read the book. I just know what I saw on the screen. And does it shine? Uh, It glimmers a little for me. Like, I enjoyed this film, not as a horror film, kind of a supernatural thriller. It kind of works. Again, like I've said throughout this podcast, on that comic book logic, this is Magneto versus Professor X. You're, you know, good shiners, bad shiners. And yeah, my biggest problem with this film, this is a all right film. What could have made it a better film, though, is if they would have developed Danny. That's who I thought this film was going to be about. And it's mostly, I don't really know who it's about. It's a little bit about Danny, a little bit about Abra. It kind of does seem like it came from King's mind where there's not a whole lot of focus. We're just going to go all over the place. But again, I enjoyed the ride as a supernatural thriller. I'm not looking for anything deeper in this. I, I couldn't tell you any deeper meaning to this. Millennials versus boomers. I don't see any of that. But yeah, you want to eat some popcorn for two and a half hours and watch a film? You could do worse. It's satisfying entertainment. I'll put it on that level. It's a mild green arrow. Stuart. No, too, too kind. I, I'll, I'll be kind in this much. If you had to be faithful to that novel, this is probably as good as it was going to get. I do think that Flanagan has some creepy moments. The baseball kid death scene, cocaine woman and her child haunting McGregor in the bed. The other movie that I was thinking about when I was watching this was 2010. The only other movie that has dared to give us a sequel to a Kubrick film. And you know what? I gave that a pass. I knew that it was a shoddy B movie, but it had its own sense of style and I was able to go with it. For me, the reason why I can't be as kind here, it comes down to those characters. It is character, ultimately, where you can continue to fault this movie about what it could have been able to fix is it could have at least allowed these actors to shine. They could have grown into these parts. They could have given you 
details that King overlooked in trying to lay out his mythology of the true knot, we could have learned who these people were and the impact that the Overlook Hotel had had on young Danny. As it is, a lot of that stuff is just lost in the shuffle. And you know what it really did? I mean, honestly, I walked out of this movie feeling so numb that what got exercised is my love for nostalgia. Like, I don't want to go back anymore. Like, I don't need to see any more of my childhood brought back. Yeah, after this and Terminator, two weeks in a row. Right, yeah. I don't need for Hollywood to do this anymore. I got it. I am an adult, and that was my childhood. I remember it, and I want to keep it there. I don't want you to bring it back for me anymore. It's not satisfying for you to hurt it in this way with these inferior recreations. I get nothing out of seeing new millennials stuck into the old scenarios and having to play it out in a way that is not scary, not involving, just not worthwhile. I don't know who's served by this movie. Fans of Kubrick's? Fans of the book, I guess, would be... I don't know who those are, but this is just not something that I ever need to live through. I have a DVD player. I'll play The Shining whenever I want to. This is a complete skip. I actually wrestled with this one a lot as to whether to recommend or not recommend this film. Because, yeah, I do have some problems that mostly go back to King Source material. That the villain is unnecessarily weak and not frightening. The hero is... Bland, and by hero, I am referring to Dan and not Abra. She's bland too. I think she actually has the most character of anybody on screen. But here's what this movie has going for it is I do think every performer here, every actor in an original role, I'm not going to say this for Henry Thomas or fake Wendy, but I think there's some really good performances here. The actress playing Abra astonished me how good she was when Dan inhabits her body and this actress has different mannerisms different delivery different everything when she is playing ewan mcgregor is inside my body versus i am the 13 year old girl abra mcgregor does the best he can with what he's given i think he's given more meat to chew on in the drunk scenes when he shaves his beard a lot of his character went away too i feel bad for mcgregor who said the reason he took this role was he was really looking forward to playing a recovering addict and being able to delve those emotions he's not given any of that to do Mm -hmm. and i think rebecca ferguson here is really good as playing this carnival she's poorly written but i think she does the character really well. I like the scenes where she does turn Snakebite Andy. I don't feel like in a movie that had a place, but Ferguson is doing well with the material. I love the scene where she entices little Violet and does the magic tricks. The performances here are good. And the end with The Shining, the recreation is faithful. And all of the recasting is decent except Henry Thomas. Again, that when Henry Thomas came back as the bartender, I was like, oh, this is bad. But then when he comes back again later in the hallway, I'm like, this is, no, 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 do not continue to go back to this like it was a good idea. And so I walked out of there and I'm like, the movie was competent. The movie seemed to do pretty well on a lot of places. I was leaning weak recommend. I really was. When I walked out of that theater, if you'd put a gun to my face, I would have probably gone weak recommend. I might put a gun to your face now if you give it a recommend. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, you can probably tell from the way I'm building up that I really chewed on this for a while because I was talking to Marjorie about it and I'm like, just 
thought about, do I want to take her to see it? Would she enjoy it? And I'm like, there's nothing here I can recommend for her to see. It was a fine, competent movie, but I had no desire to go back. I went back and watched it one more time just for this review. Okay, you did do that. I thought about it, but I just didn't want to. I didn't want to either is the thing. <laughs> I would have done it for the review, but I just, I don't think it would have changed my opinion. And everything that you're saying, I'm just not convinced that I need to delve again. And I guess that's where I differ. If I, you put a gun to my head and said, you got to go see it a second time right now. Uh, okay. It's not going to be a bad time. No, it's not a horrible time or anything, but when I rewatched it the second time, I hoped to find more to say why I would recommend it. Here's what it comes down to, is this movie, I feel it's competent on every level, except it adheres too close to King's prose. It would have done well to take a little bit more Kubrick and realize that we need to streamline some of these stories and pare it down a little bit and really strengthen some character motivations. If that woman and that baby died at that moment, sell me that because two watchings, I didn't get it. But what happened was when I watched this movie a second time, I killed it and I tortured it and I went to feed off of it and there was no steam in there. This movie has no shine. It lacked a soul. It was a very mechanical recreation of King's book and Kubrick's film. It walked the tightrope okay. It made King very happy. It made Kubrick's estate very happy. They also signed off on this. But to me, if you want to relive The Shining, Ready Player One was my go-to. Go watch Ready Player One. It has better Shining callbacks and is scarier in those Shining callbacks than this is. I mean, it just goes to show you Steven Spielberg is greater than Mike Flanagan. (laughs) Who would have thought of it? But while I can't find a glaring flaw with this movie except for Henry Thomas I'm gonna just go not recommend because yeah I just don't feel like this movie has something you you should see I don't think there's something in here worth making the trek for it's I think a little longer than it has to be and every problem in King's prose is here they didn't fix anything and they added a few new problematic things so I'm sad to say it and I wish I could see what everybody I'm talking to is seeing because I've talked to a lot of people who love this movie and I'm like I don't see why you do I don't understand they love it yeah like with a heart yeah Many of them also love the book, though. Okay, that's different then. Yeah, I was about to say, a lot of people, when there's anticipation, if you like the book, that's probably the only audience that is served here. If you wanted that story to be told, I think they did a good job telling that story. I would say it's a good adaptation of a very terrible novel. And so why would you need to see that? Uh, Yeah, the best adaptation is not going to redeem it. It was dead from the start. And adaptation can improve a weak book a good adaptation can because sometimes an external perspective can be like okay you've got a solid skeleton here but some of the meat is missing on the bones let me fix that let me gloss over that we have seen cases where the movies are better than the book including some stephen king stuff yeah no doubt i'm not arguing that that's always the case but i didn't believe that they would have the freedom to do what kubrick did Kubrick had the freedom to go in and go, I'm throwing this out, I'm doing that, I'm going to add this. Flanagan did not have that freedom. He had to be beholden to follow very closely what was not working on the page. Yeah, well, I feel like this is Flanagan's career path because he said he's already talking with King on the next collaboration and he's not at liberty to say what it would be and he is willing to do nothing but King films for as long as King will let him. Like I said, that's why I look at him as the new Frank Darabont. 
Or maybe McGarris is a better apt comparison. Yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to it. Again, he's had an incredible run. This movie is probably the worst one that I've seen. It actually reminded me of another film he made called Before I Wake with Thomas Jane and Kate Bosworth. And they had a kid that ended up PG-13 fantasy horror that is a little bit better than this. But ultimately, all my problems are specifically with this book. Again, the worst Stephen King novel I can think of reading outside of Tommyknockers. I don't know that there's one I dislike more. So if he picks a good King book... Sure, that could be a good movie. Oh, there are so many worse books. I don't doubt it. I haven't read nearly the amount that you have. But yeah, I could not think of one that I dislike more. Read Cell. Okay. (laughs) You're going to have to. That movie is out there. It never got theatrically released, but that movie is out there with Sam Jackson and John Cusack. Okay, so not The Cell with Jennifer Lopez. No, it's just Cell. I couldn't believe how shit that book went after I was so excited for Stephen King to finally write a zombie novel in the era of Walking Dead and all of that, and oh boy. So we will get back to King. I think that it's going to be our New Year's treat to revisit Misery is the next one on the book list. And I like that book. I remember liking that movie. It's been a while. I know Misery is also on the second season of Castle Rock. So I'll be revisiting that as well. I'm looking forward to hanging out with Annie Wilkes again. And I remember loving the movie more than the book. My memory of the book, I need to reread it. My memory of the book is long passages of the book within a book about Misery the character and not enough of what the movie actually gives us, which is... I mean, you just described every Stephen King novel. Yeah. <laughs> long passages of stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah, I remember that too. It's not true, Arnie. I, I will just go ahead and preview my thoughts on that book. I remembered it that way because I read it as a teenager. I actually appreciate reading the Misery novel within the Misery novel. Okay. Well, I will be revisiting that before the end of the year. And we have one more brand new release. You could say it's an 80s or a 70s phenomenon coming back to the big screen. More nostalgia. We've been just doing this complete slew of new release films with Terminator and really Doom Annihilation and Three from Hell and Doctor Sleep and... Zombieland 2. Well, next week we wrap it up. Jacob, you, Marjorie, and I... Don't call us angels as we go into the new Charlie's Angels movie. Have you seen the video yet, Jacob, for Don't Call Me Angel with Ariana Grande? And Is this is this a music video yeah. you're talking about? I don't even know where you watch music videos these days, YouTube. <laughs> no, I've only seen a trailer. I'm a big fan of Lana Del Rey, and I don't know why she's hanging out with those girls. Like, she's better than them. Because they're more popular than her? <laughs> Maybe. We will be back next week with that. And in the meantime... If you are a gold level donor, you got not one, but two bonus podcasts this past weekend. Juwan the Curse and Juwan the Curse 2. Now you're going to get the real movies this weekend. Juwan the Grudge is the movie that they adapted and turned into the 2004 Sarah Michelle Gellar, The Grudge. Actually filmed on film and not taped. Yeah, it's technically Juwan 3. So we're getting Juwan the Grudge, Juwan the Grudge 2 this weekend. There's 12 Grudge movies, counting the new one, 12 bonus podcasts at the gold level, meaning a total of 17 bonus podcasts with I Am Legend and Zombieland for a $25 donation that really helps this show keep going. I mean, that is really, really inexpensive per podcast, and we have given the full now playing treatment to these Japanese films. I learned a lot about The Grudge and The Curse and Juwan and all of that, including how to pronounce Juwan and not Yuan. So... 
So much there. We hope you can join us and support the show. Details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for listening to this show. We will do more King before all Lang Syne is sung. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. It's time for us to go away for a week because all podcasting and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Danny, what's the matter, honey? You having a bad dream? Danny? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. All my friends are here. You have friends everywhere in the Overlook, Mr. Torrance. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews and analysis of the original Stephen King Shining novel, as well as the 2013 sequel, Doctor Sleep. There is something that wants us to join the party. Don't you understand that? And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new King movie review. Come play with us. Forever. And ever. And ever. In the archives section of our website, you can find reviews of other Stephen King movie series such as Carrie and Salem's Lot. You can also hear reviews of other films such as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. You'd do better just to listen, Mr. Torrance. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. It's amazing how fast you get used to such a big place. I tell you, when we first came up here, I thought it was kind of scary. <laughs> I fell in love with it right away. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Having a good time? Yes, Dad. I want you to have a good time. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. But if you help me, the way Danny's been helping me, then we can get through this. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm awfully glad you asked me that, Lloyd. 
because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet. I was afraid they were going to be there next April. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. I've got something for you you're not going to find in any of those boxes, if you want it. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Here's Johnny! Now Playing's The Shining Retrospective Series is edited by Phil, Dylan, and Arnie. Have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract? in which I have accepted that responsibility. You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future if I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities? Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Now playing credit narration by Brock. You keep pouring, and you can say anything you like, big boy. The Shining films are the property of their copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I see you can hardly have taken care of the business we discussed. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Words of wisdom, Lloyd. Words of wisdom. Now Playing is a Venganza Media Production copyright 2019, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Kissing, kissing. Yeah, that's what I've been missing. Gentlemen, I think the party's over. Red run!